This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. You heard it on Fight Back first. Pharmacists will be allowed this season to administer high-dose flu shots in addition to the regular vaccines. And this past week, Premier Doug Ford announced a $70 million flu shot campaign as part of his government's COVID-19 fall preparedness plan. The Premier says 5.1 million vaccine doses have been ordered, 700,000 more than last year, including 1.3 million high-dose flu shots. For reaction on Wednesday, Libby Snymer was joined by Georgetown family physician and anesthetist Dr. Nadia Alam, Toronto family physician Dr. Robert Keystone, and Toronto-based pharmacist Dean Miller. 2020 is going to be a little bit different uh, in that, you know, for the first time ever, it does look like pharmacists will be able to administer high-dose flu, which, of course, is a, a higher level of antigen in there so that, you know, seniors, especially those over 65, uh, can get a high-dose uh, flu vaccine at their pharmacy, which they weren't able to do in the, in the past. So so we've had the ability to, to do flu shots for about 10 years now, but this will be a bit of a groundbreaking year for pharmacy. Um, you know, with uh, Premier Ford's announcement yesterday about increased numbers, um, we're feeling a lot more confident than we have in the last few years. Uh, you know, there's been changes almost every year, and those changes always bring some struggles when it comes to availability. But uh, um, happy to hear the announcement yesterday that uh, we look like we're in a better position than we have been in the last few years. Dr. Kingstone, and, and I know that uh, there have been big restrictions on in-person vin- visits at your clinic. Uh, are you going to be offering high dose or any any kind of flu shots this year? Well, the answer is yes, we want to. <clears throat> and the gamut from six months to however old you are, because that's the age group that must be covered. So we are expecting our flu shot vaccine supply to come in by mid-October. We don't know how much we're going to get of what. We don't know how long the supply will last for. We order every two weeks, and we are concerned about how to deal with the uh, amount of people we expect to receive the flu shot this year. We expect it to be higher than last year. And then we have all the uh, COVID restrictions with distancing, et cetera, and pre-screening because we cannot have. 50, 60 people descend without appointments to our office expecting a flu shot, you know, on a Monday or a Tuesday or what have you. So we're looking into the alternatives whereby we may have to rent other space, go in with other clinics. Um, Drive-by doesn't work. It just complicates the traffic patterns where our office is on Eglinton Avenue so that the local people complain bitterly. It has not worked in the past with the pediatric clinic trying to get um, regular shots through there. So we're looking at uh, partnering with other clinics, uh, renting space, putting up a tent, um, 
and uh, we'll see how that evolves. I haven't got a final um, uh, outcome on that yet. Okay, that's interesting. Dr. Allum in Georgetown, what are your plans? It's, it's definitely been challenging. The biggest consideration that we have is the realization that we can't run flu shots the way we used to, where we could do mass vaccination in a very quick, um, very efficient way where we could hire extra people to help us out. Now we're constrained by considerations around PPE. And yes, while a lot of care has been moved towards virtual care, flu shots yeah. cannot be given virtually. Well, exactly, <laughs> so, or any other shots for, yeah. for that matter. The flu is not just a cold. It's a pretty serious illness, even on its own. COVID pandemic aside, the flu, getting the flu isn't just an inconvenience where you end up missing work. There's a risk of heart disease and, and stroke from catching the flu. It can have a, it can take its toll on a person. And it kills um, and about, what, 2,500 people a year? About 3,500 Canadians yes. a year. And what they found in Australia, which was fascinating, was um, they did mass vaccinations this year. They got pretty good uptake, uh, better than in other years. They also found fewer people died because of that. So the flu shot makes a difference. It is as safe as wearing a seatbelt when you're driving a car. It is as it improves your chances of surviving the flu and surviving the flu well and be healthy afterwards as much as a seatbelt protects you during an accident. So it's really worth considering for your own safety, not just for your community's safety, but for your own safety. Georgetown family physician and anesthetist Dr. Nadia Alam, Toronto family physician Dr. Robert Kingstone, and Toronto-based pharmacist Dean Miller. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, we heard some grim predictions from the country's chief public health officer. Dr. Teresa Tam says the most recent modeling shows that in the short term, the spread of the virus will escalate. And unless we collectively smarten up, there could be upwards of 156,000 total cases and 9,300 related deaths by October 2nd. That's this coming Friday. For reaction, Libby was joined on Wednesday by Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, and Dr. Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. It's important that we see a bad case scenario so that we will smarten up. People need to understand that the threat is real. It may not be as dire as projected, but that is the situation if we don't do the appropriate thing. Uh, I just want to, Dr. Furness, maybe you can help me clarify a number that I read here. The 9,300 deaths, I thought we already have about 9,200. So another 100, um, I guess that would mean another 100 in in, uh, a week or so. Every country undercounts deaths, so the true toll of COVID is bound to be much higher in Canada. So it's really hard to know what to do with those numbers. But we're also, it's important, we're we're getting better at treating COVID, uh, and, and so we can expect fewer deaths. However, death is not the best or the only way to measure the impact of COVID. We're seeing that COVID is causing brain damage in lots of people. They're not dead, but they're harmed, and they're harmed permanently in serious ways. So we really do want to think about 
COVID as being harmful, not just lethal. The problem now appears to be younger people who want to have social interaction, right? No question. And I, I do see a strong link between having restaurants open uh, for in-restaurant dining, where it, the people at risk are not the customers, but the servers, and they're in their 20s, and there is a party culture among servers. And this is, this is we, we really have to make this stop, and we have to make that stop now. Dr. Furness, I mean, this is, uh, I guess, a bit of a, you know, fungible question, but, you know, we've heard our public officials kind of scolding younger people. Uh, that tone doesn't really seem to be working, does it? I don't think that's ever worked in public health. What you really want to do is set up the, what is normal, what is good, what is healthy, and get people to lead by example and point to the positive and orient toward conformity. Young people do like to conform. They don't like having their fingers wagged at them. In fact, really nobody does. And uh, public health physicians tend not to do that. That tends to be politicians doing that. And yeah, it's, uh, it, I think it's, it's really, really important to, to understand that once you wag your finger, people stop listening, and then they stop being able able to listen. So messaging is incredibly important with every age group and and with that age group in particular. So is there anything else, Dr. Furness, that you would like to see basically shut down uh, to greet the second wave? Any situation where people are indoors with each other, not wearing masks, I think that's, we just need to draw the line right there. If the people are in your bubble, fine, but your bubble needs to be tiny. It needs to be small. It needs to shrink. And anytime you are indoors with anyone else, we've got to be wearing a mask. I think if we all were able to do that, that would be great. The, my biggest fear, and I see this across all age groups, and I hate to say it, the older folks are, the more I see it, is they're saying, I'm being careful, but then they're telling me about their activities and I'm watching what they do, and they're not. So, so there's a gap between self-perception of saying, yes, I'm a careful person, I'm being careful, but the rules are confusing, and there's been one, you know, one loosening leads to another leads to another. So I hear about sleepovers and large gatherings for, for high holidays and so on and so forth. Those aren't safe. Part of the the backlog, uh, what I'm hearing is that if you have a child who has to be tested to get back into school because they've got a runny nose, sometimes, often, the whole family shows up and they all want tests and they aren't turned away. Okay, well, that's the big one. And right now, all the doctors are saying that should stop because that's eating up capacity time. If the kid ends up being positive, then yes, then the family becomes uh, first-order contacts that must then be tested. But until the child tests positive, they do not qualify as first-order contacts. So it eats up testing capacity, and it's probably not the strategy right now. But as I'm going to reinforce our statement, increase testing capacity so we can offer that service in the future. Epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandin at the University of Ottawa and epidemiologist Dr. Colin Furness at the University of Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. In some 60 Ontario pharmacies this past Friday, COVID-19 testing for asymptomatic people got underway. The pharmacies are in high-risk areas, and the plan by the Ford PCs at Queen's Park is to take pressure off the 150 or so assessment centres, which have seen lengthy lineups since schools started going back. To find out how the program is rolling out, Libby spoke with Dr. Jillian Kohler, a professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, along with pharmacists Dean Miller and John Papasturgio, whose pharmacies are both taking part in COVID testing, which is by appointment only. Yeah, we didn't get a lot of uh, time to prep, but uh, 
I think everything's in place now. So we've kind of rushed over the last week to get everything in, uh, set up. And uh, I think we're ready to go. We're taking appointments. Uh, there's a ton of demand, I can tell you. My, my phone has been ringing off the hook all day at the pharmacy. Tell me, how, how does it work? So when we say it's for asymptomatic people, it's, it's probably for people who have come into contact with someone or uh, they need to have a test to go visit someone in long-term care or their kid has a runny nose and they have to get a test too. So what's the protocol? I think the key point here, it is for asymptomatic patients. They can't, they can't have traveled in the last 14 days or they couldn't have been in contact with someone uh, that has COVID or was symptomatic. So we're screening everyone prior to uh, taking the appointment, and then we're booking them, and the plan is to, to come in. I mean, this is for people that uh, may need a test for work. I call them the walking worried, uh, people that wander around and they're just wondering. Uh, the goal is to take some of the traffic away for the uh, from the other centers. I mean, uh, there's a center at uh, Toronto East General Hospital, Michael Guerin Hospital there, and the wait time's like over four hours. My patients tell me every day. Yeah. So hopefully we'll take some of the burden off of them. Yeah, and th- and then the question is, okay, you wait for four hours, and then how many days do you wait to get a result? Yeah, that I mean that's been varying. I think yeah, usually it's three or four days. We haven't submitted our first test, so it's going to be interesting to see how quick we get the uh, the results back. Right now, the plan is if someone's positive, we'll call them and let them know. Anyone with a green uh, health card uh, can log in online and check the results themselves. Okay, Dean Miller, uh, so uh, where are you sending your tests for results, for p- processing? Uh, you know what, Libby, they, they're all going to the same spot. Uh, it's it's here in Toronto. Um, and uh, I think the first wind of this I got was last Friday, and it's the plan's changed a couple of times already. Uh, not that it's changed radically, but uh, we've, we've been getting new information I think each and every day this week, uh, you probably agree with that, John, I would think. And, and, uh, you know, we're just gearing up, uh, we've got one pharmacy in Ottawa and one, one, uh, in Mississauga that, uh, are participating. What kind of tests? So it's not those you see. I mean, I sort of cringe every time I see a picture of one of those tests that's going up into your brain, but it's not that, right? Yeah. So it's it's a little bit different than than uh, you know what's happening at the assessment center. So so there's really uh, there's there's two uh, there's two tests that that um, are at the option of the, of the pharmacist. So it's either a uh, a nasal swab, which isn't the nasopharyngeal swab that everybody's sort of looked at and went, oh boy, that doesn't look very comfortable. Um, it, it's more of a shallow swab. Uh, or there's one which is a throat swab, which, uh, you know, pharmacists are trained to, uh, to administer. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's quite a bit different than the, uh, the assessment, uh, you know, at places like Michael Guerin uh, that John mentioned. Okay, so so it's a lot easier to administer and easier. Yeah, to take. I would say a little a little bit more comfortable. Okay, Dr. Jillian Kohler. So, what is your reaction to this? Well, I think in theory it's it's a great idea. I mean, right now when you look at the lines, it it looks you know daunting to get tested. Obviously, the government is the provincial government is concerned about rising cases as we all are, and there needs to be something that you know shows that there's some action being taken. I have no doubt that the pharmacies will do a careful and great job, but I worry about some of the perceptions that this might cause amongst some members of the population who might be hesitant to 
enter into a pharmacy if they think that there are potentially people with COVID-like symptoms there. So there is definitely a public perception issue. The safety issue will have to be very well communicated to the population so they still feel comfortable. And also, just in terms of, you know, how much um, support pharmacies can give, obviously, this will have to be built up in time. And that's what my understanding is, that the government is saying will happen. Um, but at the same time, one wonders, you know, is this is this enough? We don't know enough yet. We're learning, as others have pointed out, in terms of how to do these tests, how to get the results back quickly. I think this is a positive sign. I'm, I'm optimistic that the pharmacies will do it right. And I'm hopeful that as the money begins to be um, available and pharmacies can actually scale up, we'll see more and more of this testing and, and help put a dent in this pandemic, at least in our province. That was Libby's conversation on Thursday with Dr. Jillian Kohler, a professor at the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto, along with pharmacist Dean Miller and John Papasturgio. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Two long-term care homes in the Ottawa area, West End Villa and Laurier Manor, both owned by Extended Care, have been grappling with severe outbreaks of COVID-19 during what is now the second wave. The situation is grim enough that Ottawa's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Vera Etches, has ordered the Ottawa Hospital to take over management of the homes. What about testing residents of nursing homes if COVID begins catching as it did with such devastation in the first wave? On Thursday, Libby spoke with Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, about whether the province is ready to help our most vulnerable and prevent another tragedy like we saw in nursing homes this past spring. Having other places for people to go to get tests will make a big difference because Families and visitors and others who come into long-term care need to uh, attest to the fact that they have received a COVID COVID test. And um, right now, we've been hearing the lineups are so long everywhere that it's a real deterrent. What about the tests that you conduct in long-term care itself? Yesterday, you were saying it can take six days to get a result? Correct. So in the long-term care homes, they have to test the staff every two weeks and... Um, having access to the tests isn't a problem so much as getting the results back. And we are shocked to hear that it is now taking six to eight days to get results back. So, for example, if you have a resident with COVID and then you test the other people they've been exposed to and around, you won't know for six to eight days, depending on what part of the province you're in, if other people are sick too. So how do you isolate people and how do you protect uh, people in those situations. Are any outbreaks, recent ones, related to the backlog in the testing? I don't really know exactly um, what the attributing factors are. That would need to be answered by the public health units that have been looking into them. But I would think that it's certainly, if it hasn't already, it will play a factor until this is resolved and until we can get test results soon because Otherwise, um, you could have uh, people in a home, uh, you know, interacting with one another, and some of them could have COVID, and you don't even know it. I mean, unless you lock people in their rooms, and even then, often they share rooms, uh, and that's not a very nice way to live, how do you really stop this from spreading? It's like trying to fight um, an enemy with a blindfold on. 
What have they done for the long-term care sector? Do you have more staff? Are you confident that what happened in the spring is not going to happen again? I'm deeply concerned that um, as we seem to be entering wave two, that we actually might have a worse situation in long-term care because uh, homes are now opened up to visitors and families coming in and residents can go out. You know, those restrictions were put in place at the beginning, but as time goes on, you can't keep people locked up in the homes and keep them away from their family. And so you have this situation where the virus can now get into the home more easily and uh, we can't test to see who's sick. And also we've found out that despite all of the things we do know and measures that have been taken, we are unable to keep the virus from running through homes. There are certain older homes that, that just seem, no matter what you do, they can't stop the virus from running through them. And so we saw some outbreaks in the spring. And when I saw those, I knew that we would be in trouble with the second wave. And now we see what's going on in Ottawa. And was that just one outbreak? Are there other outbreaks that we should know about? Uh, well, there's there's a number of, I think, around 30 outbreaks in long-term care homes that I saw yesterday. Uh, but it seems to be two large ones in Ottawa that I'm aware of in long-term care. But I think it's unfortunately just the beginning, especially with these older homes, because they don't have anywhere to isolate people properly. And how do you isolate someone who has dementia and is a wanderer, you know, in, in a humane way? So what we have asked the government, because we we don't have the human resources. Uh, We have less human resources now than we did in the first wave. Uh, In the first wave, people had pandemic pay, and that kept them in their jobs. Some of them, that's gone, even though we still have a pandemic. And we also were able to place people from the Registered Nurses Association, but they're no longer providing that service. We had redeployed staff from other workplaces, but they're now back to work. So what we've said to government is if you have an older home and it's been shown to have a history of not being able to isolate or cannot isolate people, then transfer the first few cases of COVID-19 residents to hospital before you have a massive outbreak. You know, we, we need to think about putting resources into field hospitals and other settings because if hospitals are jammed, which I'm hearing they are, and, you know, they're trying, so people are desperate to get their surgeries uh, back on track then we need to think about other settings to make sure we can have places for people. We can't just throw up our hands and say, it doesn't matter, we'll just let them die in long-term care. Like, we we need to have options. Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of the best calls of this last week. Ron in Toronto phoned with a question about reducing gatherings right across the province. Why are they making these changes in terms of number of people that can attendance and social gatherings? Why are they making them province-wide when... I mean, you go to Cochrane, Ontario, or Hurston, you're lucky if you have five COVID cases for the whole year. Jerry in Toronto called about the federal old age pension. I'm hoping that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau keeps his election promise of increasing the old age pension by 10% for seniors over 75. Uh, For couples, it's okay, but for single seniors over 75... Uh, we have a really hard time, you know, like over 100% of the uh, pension pays just the uh, maintenance fee, and then the property tax has to come out of our savings. It's, it's really hard to get by. And now... 
Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who phoned to remind us of the devastating long-term effects of COVID-19. One of the um, things that's being overlooked when we discuss number of cases, people talk about deaths in relation to cases, but there is a lot of uh, evidence and instances out there now where the effects of the COVID disease are lasting much longer than uh, anyone had thought. And they're actually being referred to as long haulers who are having negative impact of COVID six months to a year after they've had the disease. So um, people treat are continuing to treat this as just a, uh, or some are continuing to look at it as normal flu. It is not. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby and have your say anytime on our FightBack voicemail at 416-367-9636, 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of FightBack. The best of FightBack is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.